Welcome to Spiritual Grit, the podcast where we talk real talk about spirituality through the lens of activism and social justice. What happens when activism and spiritual practices collide? What sparks of change call for the grit we need to create meaningful strides in social justice? I'm your host, Leslie Ann Hobayan, poet, priestess, activist, professor, hip-hop dancer, and badass mama. Join me as we dive in to learn more about our deepest selves so that we can be better ancestors to create a stellar world for our descendants. Grab your dancing shoes and let's get groovy with the grit right now. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Spiritual Grit. Today, I have a very special guest. Um, I'm not going to say who it is yet because I'm going to do like that secret intro and then reveal the name. (laughs) For those of you watching the video, you already see who it is, but I'm going to go through just a brief formal intro. Poet, editor, and prose writer, He was born in the United Kingdom to Muslim parents of Indian descent and has lived transnationally all over the freaking place, US, Canada, India, France, and the Middle East. Um, Basically a citizen of the world, as I like to say. Uh, His recent book of poetry is called The Voice of Sheila Chandra, which has been put out by Alice James Books um, and a memoir, Northern Light, Power Land, and the Memory of Water. And the latest, which I'm so excited to get my hands on, is The Citadel of Whispers, a Choose Your Own Adventure book. Oh my God, can't wait. I want to talk about that because I don't know. I love I love all of it, what I've read about it. Uh, but to start our episode, oh, so let's welcome to the show, Kazim Ali. Woo! Look at <laughs> Hi there. Oh. <laughs> so nice to be with you again after yes. several many months. Yes, I'm so glad to uh, to connect again. Just being in your presence feels amazing. Even <laughs> even though you are, you know, as you said before we started recording, even though you've got a little of the jet lag, just being even virtually in your presence, I'm like, oh, yeah, such goodness, <laughs> such light. Love it, love it. Thank you. Um, yeah, to start our episode, as we always do, we'll turn to Hafez as the oracle of of poets, to so to speak. Um, And this randomly selected poem is called Burglars Hear Watchdogs. If one is afraid of losing anything, they have not looked into the friend's eyes. They have forgotten God's promise. The jewels you get when you meet the beloved go on multiplying themselves. They take root everywhere. They keep mating all the time like spring warmed creatures. Burglars hear watchdogs inside of his gifts and run. Hmm. I have to sit with that for a second. I might, I might, I might read it again, just because I, I feel so, like that's yeah. a, a lot, so. a lot, a lot of different layers in here. Burglars hear watchdogs. If one is afraid of losing anything, they have not looked into the friend's eyes. They have forgotten God's promise. The jewels you get when you meet the beloved go on multiplying themselves. They take root everywhere. They keep mating all the time like spring warmed creatures. Burglars hear watchdogs inside of his gifts and run. Hmm. What do you think? What are your thoughts? That last part kind of throws me off. Burglars. Yeah. Hear watchdogs inside of their gifts. It's meant, in other words, the gifts are meant to be taken. If one thinks one's stealing them, you've missed the point, I guess. You hear a watchdog mm. inside of a gift and you're a burglar and you run away. You don't take the gift. You think it's mm. a you. Mm. Or you'll be caught and punished for some reason for taking the gift. Or this... Maybe it's this idea of the gift isn't meant for us, even though it is, but we're under this illusion that we want it, but we don't think we deserve it, that we have to steal it, maybe? That it's not already ours? Yeah. That it's something that needs to be stolen or seized? But maybe that's part of the illusion of 
this human thing that we are, the ego, because it is ours, right? The gift is already ours, but our egos might get in the way of, of realizing that. I also wonder in Sufi, um, I'm not, I don't know a lot about Sufi philosophy, um, but I wonder what the, who the friend actually is. The friend with a capital F is like, I, I suppose normally taken to be God, um, but could the friend also be the world? Could the friend be experience? Could the friend be ourselves? I mean, that's yoga. Like God is the, yeah. the true self is with the capital S. Right. A friend could be one's own self, true self. Um, could the friend be just an actual other person in the world? If God lives in every human, then it could be another. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't really know. I just think that, you know, some of these poems, like, I was looking at the jacket copy, not the book itself. <laughs> I was looking at the jacket <laughs> copy of Karen Armstrong's new book. Um, she's a writer who writes about religion and faith. Um, many, many, many books and a really interesting thinker, person. And her new book is about sacred texts and the role that they play in our lives and our society. Oh. And according to her, and she's a, a historian, so, you know, I believe her, like, I, you know, <laughs> imagine that she's correct about saying that. Um, but she says that, um, you know, his sacred texts were always considered to be tools for learning or tools for spiritual practice. They were never meant as like dictionaries. They were never yeah. meant as, you know, this is what the Quran says about this, or this is what the Bible says about this. And um, they were both collections, the Quran too, and the Torah and the New Testament and the, the Talmud and the Midrash and tradition of commentary in Jewish culture, um, history and the Bhagavad Gita, and the Rig Veda, the Vedas, all of those. All right. the, the Upanishads, they're all collected texts over many years. Their provenance is not um, really known. You know, um, the Quran, like people claim to know, but it, it's actually the truth of the textual gathering was that there were many oral versions. And mm. at one point, one of the caliphs, a guy named Usman, um, or Uthman, depending on what, which pronunciation you use. Um, he said, this one is the definitive one and all of the others have to be collected and burned. So there's only one. So mm. even if we don't know where it came from precisely, there is an origin point for the Quran. It's the burning of all the others, of all the alt alternate versions. So I'm really mm. interested in the idea of like spirit. So anyways, Karen, to go back to Karen Armstrong, I forgot, I was actually trying to make a point. She says that um, throughout history that the spiritual texts were not meant as dictionaries. They were not seen that way by the audiences themselves at the time. They were always seen as things that were open to interpretation. And so Hafez or Hafiz, depending on what language you say his name in, because right. people argue about how you pronounce the word, but of course <laughs> from Arabic, you know, across the Silk Road from the Arab world, from the Maghreb really to, to Pakistan, uh, or to China, which was really the Eastern end of the Muslim world, um, pronunciations change. And so in Farsi, mm -hmm. one would say Hafez. Um, mm -hmm. and in Urdu, one would, which is in South Asia, one would say Hafiz. So mm -hmm. people can, yeah. uh, if people tell you you're saying the name wrong, just say that you're saying it in the other language. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's so funny. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. No, but I mean, he himself is open to interpretation. You enter oh, yeah. the Quran in, yeah. in any, in any, from any direction, you know? Yeah. And then it's also worth saying that the Hafez that we know mostly is not the Hafez from the original um, because that most of the translators don't, don't read the original scripts. They're just reading other versions and then making the translations out of them. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't know if there are any original. There, for, there are also very few original translations of Rumi Although there mm -hmm. are, there are some, there are some, yeah. 
But Hafez, yeah. I don't think there are any. I think they're all where all the current translations are working from older versions that the, those translators themselves. Yeah. Like, I don't think Daniel Ladinsky, who was translated the one you read, he's, yeah. he does not work from the original extant yeah. text of Hafez. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting because I sometimes take issue with his translations, but I don't know. You don't know like, where, what, what, what the where issue else is. to go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I need other translations, you know? Um, so, so part of my work has been digging around looking for, <laughs> For, for those things. Um, and I actually have a friend who's working on some translations from um, Farsi um, on, on his work. So I haven't touched base with her, but I you've reminded me to reach out to her. Um, but it's funny that you, you bring up um, Karen Armstrong's work, because even though I'm not familiar with her, the issue of sacred texts as tools is a really important one, because recently um, I was looking at the translations of the Bible and how there is this um, supposed law uh, against homosexuality, right? So there's this there's this translation that it says in the Bible that homosexuality is a sin, that it's an abomination, that it's evil, and um, and it came to my attention. I want to say earlier this spring that the um, the original Aramaic doesn't translate as that. It translates as a molester of boys. So I recently read an article about a man who was doing research at the different versions and translations of the Bible across the world and, um, and found some interesting things about it. So then it raises the question of, of how did we come to this place where we um, just mindlessly take the sacred, sacred texts and just say, this is the answer. This, this is the answer to the question of like whatever I'm seeking, the purpose in life. Yeah, well, I think it's because access to those sacred texts was always controlled by the figures in authority. I mean, of course, we all know the like very long history of the illegality of even translating the Bible out of the of the educated language, which was right. Latin, which was not the language it was even written in in the first place. So the translation, right. but to translate it into English, you know, people were burned at the stake for the crime of translating the language into English. Yeah, yeah, and I don't think a lot of people know that. Yeah, and so to have access at all um, was not, it was not there for the rank and file people. Now in the Jewish tradition, you do have a long, very long history of community discussion around those texts, a healthy dialogue that continues to this day, a, a, a millennial, millennia long conversation among people in the community about what the texts mean. Uh, but does does that exist in any other tradition? In the same way, know. in the same way. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it does exist in Shia Islam. There are uh, authorities, imams or ayatollahs. That's what, you know, we think of ayatollah, it means like who the leader of the terrorists. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, who an ayatollah is, is someone who is considered an authority to pass judgment on what, those scriptures say, but then people are allowed to choose. In Shia Islam, you're supposed to choose who your authority is. Mm -hmm. So there's some element of interaction or choice in terms of, I'll give you a really small example of a difference. So drinking is considered forbidden or haram in Islam classically. Well, in the 1980s, when, when the dialogue about public tobacco, about tobacco use was kind of more big, you know, quitting smoking and all of that, there were people who wanted a judgment from the Ayatollahs. And there are two, the two main ones in my family, there are others, um, but the two main Ayatollahs that people in my family followed, one was Ayatollah Khomeini, who people know the name of because he was the leader of Iran for many years. And then the second person was Ayatollah Sistani, People know his name now a little bit better because of the Iraq 2003, the war, that war. Um, mm. but at the time in the 80s, Ayatollah Sistani was a little more, uh, not obscure, but he was less known in the West because he lived in Iraq and he was under house arrest from the Saddam Hussein regime. So people didn't know him as well, but those were the two. And in Shia Islam, it's often like even people in the same family will have different authorities. 
So my father, for example, his chosen authority, because you choose your own authority, he chose uh, Ayatollah Khomeini as his authority, but his brothers, both of them, they had chosen Ayatollah Sistani. Hmm. And so there was this request that these Ayatollahs make a judgment about smoking, is smoking cigarettes considered haram. And one of the Ayatollahs, I forget who it was, but one of them said, uh, yes, it is. You should also not smoke. And the other one said, no, it's, that's not covered by this verse, you know? So there was an interaction with it that had real yeah. impact because if you were the follower yeah. of one of them, you would have to, you're, it's sort of incumbent on you then to, you know- So you, who smoked? <laughs> you know, my dad quit. So it must've been Khomeini who said it's haram because my dad quit smoking after that. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but that has real implications, right? But but like you said, yeah. there is a dialogue, there is a conversation. And there I feel was, that it was that- a conversation. It was a conversation. Yeah. We don't really do that anymore. People just sort of yeah. say like, this is what this means. And that's all it means. And yeah, it's, yeah. you know, it's really, it's really, if you think that, I mean, and, uh, and you know, the other thing worth saying, which we don't, we don't often say, but it's true. Uh, I think it's true. These are also texts. They were mostly written in like a very geographically specific part of the world with its own yep. conditions of life mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah. And also many thousands of years ago <laughs> where they were right. like, they could not have anticipated the types of conflicts and confusions that we face today. So the relevancy yeah. has to be I mean, I believe in spiritual guidance. I really do. And I believe mm. the, the magic and the weight of those old texts. Of course I do. I feel the same way about ancient poetry and the things mm-hmm. that teach us about the human condition today, about yeah. our lives. Yeah. I do think that they can do that. But we have to, I mean, there's like a literality around, you know, the way that people approach it, that it's not, it's not appropriate yeah. any, anymore. Yeah. Way. Yeah. Common sense isn't always so common and we need to discern, right. <laughs> what, what, how to, how to apply it in, in our current, our current realities, um, which reminds me of, well, as you were talking, it reminds me of how poetry is taught, um, particularly at the high school level where, you know, we'll teach the, the quote unquote classics, you know, Emily Dickinson, Walt Whitman, and then there's only going to be one interpretation, right? This, this is what the poem means. And if you don't get it, then you don't understand poetry, you know? So there's this parallel that's happening, which I feel um, for, for at least my students, um, I feel it closes them off to poetry. So when they show up in my class, they're very resistant about it. You know, they're very like scared about poetry. They're like, am I doing it right? And, um, and it sucks. I mean, to be to be frank about it. So, is there um, is there something that you can? And we're kind of going off, you know, in a different direction. But um, is there something you can offer, you know, young people who are looking to either you know spiritual, sacred texts, or poetry for for guidance for you know finding their way to who they are. How can they approach these these things? Well, I think that um, one thing that we do when we teach poetry is like try to help someone understand a poem in in the way that it is making its meaning um, and it's it's um, uh, the 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 qualities of language or form that enable us to understand what the poem is about, and I don't necessarily think. Um, wow, it was, there was a Susan Sontag essay that was about this precise thing about art, Mm. about visual art being that the form of the art should be taught and understood and not not necessarily what is it about, you know, like Brancusi's bird in flight, you know, what is Mm. Brancusi's bird in flight about, you know, the idea that that question of aboutness should be left aside in considering the work of art. And I don't, I wonder if poetry shouldn't be the same way Mm. that that it should be something that we consider, but don't try to understand fully, you know, like that Hafez Mm. poem that you just read earlier. Yeah. Um, You know, talk about the different things that it could mean, but it it could be something that we live with and think about. 
Yeah. Yeah. And experience and experience as opposed to explain. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think whether it's a poetry like literature class or a poetry writing class to, to look at it as a living thing that we interact with, like have conversations with, like we do, like you were talking about in terms of having conversations with the, the sacred texts and, and how that meaning whatever meaning we draw from it as, as readers, um, how that changes and evolves as we do. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And I think our relationship to works of literature, you know, novels too, also change throughout our lives as we ourselves change. And we might identify with certain characters in a book or think a certain way that a book means a certain thing. And yeah. then one reads it at a different point in one's own life after having had a you know different kind of experiences and understand it. Yeah, yeah. I, I have um, a professor when I was an undergraduate student, she, um, she had this tradition of reading King Lear on her birthday every year. And we all looked at her like, you're insane. <laughs> But she, but she was, she was illustrating the point that every year she reads it, something new emerges from that, where, um, you know, maybe she identified with King Lear himself or Cordelia or, you know, or this one side character, this one small moment comes out that she didn't notice before. It's because so much has happened in that year. Um, I don't know if I have the discipline to commit to some practice like that, but <laughs> I just find it a great, um, reminder of how how alive literature is contrary to popular belief <laughs> um so i wanted to ask i want because i'm very excited about the new book i want to ask about this this um this choose your own adventure <laughs> the citadel of whispers um just for the listeners could you give a, a like a quick overview and a summary about it and then i want to ask the, the the inspiration the impetus for this this project Oh, well, um, so it's the story of a land which with many different types of political conflicts and these um, small, small city-state kingdoms really um, who live in at a kind of an uneasy truce. And then there is a secret order uh, of uh, people called the Whisperers and they, you know, they begin training when they're really young, you know, nine or 10 and then by the time they're 14 or 15 they're actually sent out into the world and they're diplomats and spies and they do all different kinds of things and their mission is to keep the peace you know keep the balance of power but they're not working in the in the, in the public spheres they're work, they're always working behind the scenes so there's a lot of mm. intrigue you know and there's magic in this world too my favorite so yes yeah <laughs> Um, and so it's a fun story. It's that's it's um, you know you you take the role as the protagonist of the story as a as a young whisperer who's um, now been charged with uh, defending the kingdom. There's a threat from abroad, and um, you must uh, make the right choices and figure out you know where where can you do the most good and what are you going to, what are you going to do? And so it's, it's hopefully it's the first part of a trilogy. So it's the opening, the opening arc of the story. And um, yeah, you know, when I was in high school, I was in Model UN and Model UN is a club in high school where you get assigned a country and then you have to research everything about that country and what's happening in the world with them right now. And then you can propose resolutions based on what that country's interests are. And then you get together with everyone else. And there's a model security council and a model general assembly. So the fall was the security council and the spring was the general assembly, I think. But you would have to go and you would have to, you know, so we would be debating resolutions on you know, this was the 80s, so it wasn't, yeah. we, were, so we were, de were debating resolutions like climate change even then, but mm. it wasn't the mainstream of the thing, but like different, the refugee crises, like various different things that were happening internationally, we would be debating on them. And so me and my friends got involved in that, and we were so excited about it that we decided we were going to make up our own world and our own countries oh, that's and so cool. represent those. And I decided that my role my nation in our little countries we were making up was going to be the nation of diplomats that were responsible for like keeping the peace among everybody else 
And so we played this game by correspondence. Like people would write these letters to each other and then I would like negotiate the peace treaties and stuff like that. I mean, we were really nerdy about it. So (laughs) many years later when Choose Your Adventure came across my desk, uh, it was a former student of mine, Catherine Factor, who has written several Choose Your Adventure novels, um, including her most recent one is uh, about Cleopatra and the Great Library Ooh. of Alexandria. Yeah, that one just came out. I think it's called Spy for Cleopatra, where the protagonist is work for Cleopatra. Oh my God, and, you keep talking about this. I want to write one. <laughs> yeah, you should, you should. So then I was talking to them, the Choose Your Adventure people, around about those and I was saying like I want to write one and they were like well, what would you want to write and I said well I would want to make up my own fantasy world right mm. and so they said yes and I started to think about all those games that we used to play in high school and so I kind of like created the world like that was the seed from which all of this grew yeah that is amazing I I um First of all, thank you for explaining Model UN to me because <laughs> because I always was, was I always look at that. Well, there was a Choose Your Own Adventure book from back in the day, also that was it was the it was the you you were you were you worked for the UN and you could oh. choose these different missions in the book, and oh. so that that book also inspired me to think like oh yeah. you know and I wanted to have like young people out there making change in the world I didn't want it to be a small local story about something that just yeah. happened in the backyard I wanted them to have like international you know these young people right now these climate change activists who are doing like such amazing work like Autumn Peltier and mm-hmm. uh, you know, Greta Thunberg and the Parkland high school kids who are doing all this gu- gun control uh, work you yeah. know the, the yeah. young people who are 14 15 years old like really really putting it putting their you know lives on the line basically yeah yeah so, yeah yeah I'd, I'd, I love that because I um you know I read a little bit about the characters in the Citadel of Whispers and I and I appreciate the diversity of the characters now the word diversity gets thrown around a lot right where I feel like it gets used as a placeholder for like just non-white people, right? But there are other ways to be diverse, including, you know, gender identity. Um, so can you just give us like a little overview of our cast of characters in this? I love it. Yeah. Well, you have, Krishi, the main character is written as gender neutral because I did want whoever the reader was to step in and feel like, okay, this is me, you know, whether that's yeah. a boy or a girl or a gender neutral child who wanted to to then to then be the hero of the story. So that is on that was on purpose, and mm-hmm. that's a typical hallmark of choose your own adventure books. Oftentimes, the artwork will reveal a gender of the character, but the text itself may or may not. Um, but I was very conscious in talking about Krishi's clothes or hair, and other people do use they them pronouns when they talk about Krishi. So it's, mm. that was, that was an important part of the character for me. Um, but then there are other characters that sort of go work against gender expectations in certain ways. Like the boy, the friend who's a boy is like small and afraid and not very bold. And the friend who's a girl is really strong. She's the best fighter in the school. Uh, She's sort of based on, she wasn't based on, but she drew inspiration on the character of Sally Kimball from the Encyclopedia Brown stories. Who's (laughs) nice. In in those stories, she's the muscle, you know, and Sally is the muscle. So she was (laughs) inspired by that. But there's another character who's my favorite um, whose name is the Duchess, and she's an older woman. She's in her, uh, it does, I don't think I actually say how old she is, but she's meant to be in her late 50s, early 60s. And she's a okay. pirate captain. And she's, I love that. yeah, so she's doing all this swashbuckling and like swinging over on a rope and sword fighting. And yeah, yeah, yeah. so I loved her. And then there I is, I love that a, her name is the Duchess too. The Duchess, yeah, she has an actual <laughs> name, but she's a Duchess. She's actually a, she's actually a Duchess royal- pirate. <laughs> She is. She's royalty, but she ran away. She she didn't want to live that life anymore. Nice. Uh, yeah. So she ran away from her, you know, manor house and became a pirate captain. <laughs> I love uh, it. Yeah. And then there's a tra- there is a character named Max who's a young nine year old boy who is a trans boy, hmm. um, and he has a small role in this book, but he'll be he'll feature a, lo- a little more largely in the second book. So I just wanted to represent characters from different walks of life and different types of experiences. And 
Um, my cat has just jumped up onto the desk, so you might see her. The cat wants to be part of the conversation. Well, that was important to me because I feel like fantasies, a lot of fantasy stories have the same types of characters, stock characters over and over again. And mine do too. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, the Duchess is kind of the Han, Han Solo figure where she's, so, yeah. she's like a rogue type. Here she, here's the cat. Um, but I wanted to do it a little differently and like make my characters a little more unique. Oh. Yeah. Hello, kitty. For those of you who don't see the video, you need to watch the video so you can see how cute this cat is. Oh, so soft. Yes. <laughs> love it. Yeah. So I love I love everything about this book. And I love just being like the fact that it's choose your own adventure so that <laughs> anyone can just step right into that role yeah. You know, yeah and then decide whatever the the ending will be or the path will be towards that end um again back to this idea of conversation of engagement of interaction right it's coming up again as a theme i think in in what we've been talking about um and so your cat also wants to be part of the conversation <laughs> i love it <laughs> Yeah. So, so I want to, um, I want to sort of tie this in with, um, and I don't know if I can do it or not, but with, with the idea of our, our spiritual growth and spiritual beingness in relationship to our identity as, as human beings here on this planet, vis-a-vis -vis your, your book, because, you know, this, the choose your own adventure is geared towards, towards like middle grades, right? Like, Fifth grade, sixth grade, yeah. But I, this I'm a full. Pitch, of this one pitch is pitched a little older. It's more okay. than seven to nine. Okay, okay, but I'm not in seventh grade, so and I want to read this book. <laughs> oh no, you can still read it. You can still read it. Yeah, um, yeah. Like a little fun adventure story. You can definitely still read it. Yeah, but it, but it, but it, but what I like about that is that it it invites kids, especially at that formative years of awkward middle school to explore who they are being and, 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 you know, and not get any judgments from people or not get told, you know, you need to be this, you need to be that. So I'm wondering how we can sort of shepherd that message towards the adults as well, um, through whatever we're writing, whatever we're practicing. Um, how can we, how can we create conversations like this where, there is more conversation um, and interaction and like feedback. It's not just here's the guru. Let's you know listen to whatever that person says and take it and don't do anything else. Um, is there any way that we can invite that or cultivate that that sort of beingness that that conversation? Well, I think that's one of the reasons why I was excited about writing interactively, because there's some level of agency for the person who's reading the book to mm. um, be a part of how the story goes. Yeah. In other words. yeah. Because I think even in a regular fiction book, um, you, the char characters make choices and you see the, the impact of their choices. The only difference is that the writer doesn't include all the other choices that could have been made. Right. But the, most fiction, it's all, it is all about a character who makes choices. Should I do this or should I do that? You know, that type of thing. They're not often stories about some things that just happen to people that have no agency and they're just passive and things happen to them. I mean, that would not be very interesting as a story. So part of what Correct. we like about stories is watching people make choices. But what we've done here, what, what happens in interactive fiction is you yourself are responsible and the writer allows you to collaborate a little bit in the invention yeah. of the story. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I do think that speculative fiction and science fiction and fantasy, they lend themselves to that urge mm. more because you often see like with Star Trek or Star Wars or these, you know, other types of things you see fan fiction where yeah. people who love those things start inventing their own stories with the characters who appear. That's um, true. Yeah. So I think this is just an extension of that, I guess. And I'm, I'm hoping mm. that, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's too lofty a goal or too much to hope, but 
you know, if, if, why, if I could teach a young person that they have agency in the world, that they can impact the world, that they can be a part of positive change in the world, you know, I think that's a really worthy goal. Yeah, yeah. I, and I, I feel that that's something that's forgotten is that we all have agency, that we have the power of choice. Um, but I love that you, that you brought in fan, fan fiction because <laughs> I think of, well, no one's writing fan fiction for the Bible or the or the, well, the bible is a version of fan fiction though isn't it like <laughs> jesus came and then people wrote about him <laughs> that's true that's true um but i i'm wondering what that would look like if someone were to like read the story of jesus and then write the story of judas i mean i know it's been Something done different you know, yeah yeah that's exactly it though that is true you know or the ten commandments that movie the ten yeah. commandments you know <laughs> um which reminds me of that mel that mel brooks version did you see you see that movie where he's called? like the 15 command i forget what it was called but he's like the 15 commandments and he f- drops one of the tablets he goes uh the, the, ten, the ten commandments, commandments. <laughs> i think it's the history of the world isn't it yes it, that's it that's it, it yeah well, he yeah, also did yeah. The Life of Brian. I don't know if I've seen that one. The Life of Brian takes place like during Jesus Christ's time in Jerusalem. Ooh. I'm going to have to watch that one then. Yeah. I, yeah. All right. Noted. So, <laughs> I got so many things I got to like read and That's watch. That phrase, um, always look on the bright side of life. That comes from Oh, <laughs> okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. Um, <laughs> So, so I want to shift gears a little bit and just ask more about you because I, and your spiritual practices, because as, as a, as a poet, an editor, author, also professor, you know, you're very much in the physicality of, of life. So what does your spiritual practice look like? You know, what, what do you do for spiritual growth, spiritual development, you know, just inquiring minds want to know yeah I mean I um I've been a little bit um uh what you what would you say I've been very catholic in my approaches um I practiced yoga for about 20 years now when did I start 1999 so probably 22 22 years um I used to be very very in-depth with scripture study um, the yoga, yoga texts. And I had a several different, um, you know, gurus in, in, in that practice. Um, I don't, I don't do as much of that anymore currently. Um, not for any reason. It's just sort of, you know, one of the things that sort of has not faded, but just diminished a little bit in my life. Um, but, but I did, I did much of that and I'm, I'm starting to actually get back into it. Um, hmm. To read more of those and, and kind of revisit like the, the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, the Yoga Sutra and, mm, and modern yeah. commentaries as well, like Michael Stone's book. Um, I think it's called Yoga for a World Out of Balance. Yeah, Ooh. that kind of stuff. So and the Upanishads, I'm reading the I'm rereading actually right now, I'm rereading the Upanishads um, in uh, the Eswaran translation. So there is that. I'm also Muslim, so um, I do read the Quran. I fast every year during Ramadan. I fast. Um, I also do, um, you know, when I'm home with my family in a more community setting, I do some of the other prayers and, and uh, practices, but on my own, not, not, I don't do it as much. Yeah. So those are my primary spiritual practices right now. Um, I've been get definitely engaged in various different types of community spiritual practices based on whatever community I happen to be in at the time. So I have sat in Jewish services. I have sat, I've gone to church. Um, I have um, participated in indigenous practices when I was, you know, in the indigenous community in Northern Manitoba, about which I wrote that book, Northern Light. I yeah, did, go, yeah. did do, do some religious practices with them as well when I was there. So it kind of all depends on, uh, on where you're being called. Where I am, yeah, because I think a community, the community practice is an important part of it. You know, that is also why I, why I still fast during Ramadan, you know, because it's like something that the community of Muslims around the world is doing. So it's a way of me kind of plugging into that and participating in that. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I feel that that spiritual practice by yourself, it feels, I don't know, very lonely and isolating and and not as motivating, (laughs) not as motivating. Um, So, you know, I was, I was, I was thinking about, um, you know, this idea of spirituality um, and religion, you know, you, you mentioned yoga and you mentioned um, being Muslim and, the question I want to ask is what role does religion have within this spiritual growth and development? Because we're, we're at a time where people are, are sort of extracting the two, they're dividing it. Like religions on one side, spirituality is like, has nothing to do with religion. So what, um, what are your thoughts on, like, how do you see those two coming together or not? Um, I've, I've changed and evolved and I'm not sure what, exactly I think anymore Mm. I think a lot of people use religion as an excuse or a crutch and they don't really have a spiritual practice at all but they're just checking Mm. boxes Um, I do think that's true I think I used to be a little less judgmental on that question in the past (laughs) Um, but uh, I don't know Uh, I think that but I also think it's important for each person to find their own way of connecting with like I mean what is a religion but connecting what is beyond our current reality you know that's what a religion is to know what's afterwards what came before what's going to be coming after why are we here in this world why are we doing what we're doing those all those philosophical questions those are questions that a religion seeks to answer and a religion Mm. the only difference between a religion and a spiritual practice quote unquote is that a religion has codified things in Mm. terms of there's a right way and a wrong way to do this stuff and the religion is a is a community practice that people can do together you know so Okay, yeah. Yeah. So I don't, I don't, I don't think there. But other than that, what is the difference between spiritual, spiritual practice and religion? Nothing. It's just the religion has been is like tried to set in stone certain things. So Mm, yeah, those religions that exclude or try to say like this is how it is and this is this is not how it is like that's that is all falsehood to me at this point yeah in my yeah. life the way i yeah. believe the way i think yeah yeah it sounds like it's it's a matter of discernment again you know yeah. it's it's taking what you need to serve you and your your deepest needs rather yeah. than I mean, if you to want to look at the boxes. 10 commandments if you want to look at those 10 commandments you know that's just some basic stuff Right. Don't kill. Okay. That is not rocket science. You know what I mean? Don't lie. Okay. That's very, very basic. You know, I think like do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Fine. Sign me up. Like, you know, no drama, but you're going to get into, you're going to get into when you do your one through for prayers, you have to do the back of your arm first, then the top of your arm. And then you have to do your face this way, not this way. I mean, give me a break. You know what I mean? Like, that's what I'm talking about. Or the notion of like, what is the Trinity? You know, who is Jesus? What is all of that mean? You know, like, am I allowed to like, you know, jet, you know, should, you know, what, you know, God doesn't agree that you should love somebody of the same gender. I mean, oh, yeah. it's just ridiculous. You do understand? Yeah. Like, that's what I, yeah. think. that's what I think. Yeah. 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 And I, and I am a hundred percent in agreement with all of that. <laughs> all of that. People are so. obviously very serious about all of this stuff. You know, like my cousins, you know, I love, you know, who, who they do their prayers. They will come to my house and say like, now, which way is the Qibla? You know, that's the direction to Mecca. And I'm thinking like, does it really matter? Does it really matter? You know, but you know, if you're a Muslim person, it's an important thing to know, you know? So I try to honor the beliefs of other people, of course. So I discover like, okay, which is the direction for Qibla in my house? So I can give that information to people. Do I think it's important though? It's not important, you know? It's important that you show up. Yeah, well, I mean, here's a, here's another example. So in Islam, you're supposed to pray five times a day. There may be something behind that practice of like five times a day of these five moments that is going to create a certain reality. That's the form of the prayer. I'm not discounting that. Mm-hmm. I understand that sort of sets you up for the certain like mental space in your life, like that you have to be focused on that and think about that. Yeah. 
I get yeah. that. There's a purpose behind that. But if you're if you're gonna tell me, like I said, that you have to wash this first, then this, and not this yeah. first, then this, I mean, it's like we there has to be some application of common sense, you know? Yeah. 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 Like what is, well, what's behind that, right? Like what is like who created that, that movement and is there like a physical benefit to it? We'll just say physiologically, like, you know, there may be something about energy, nadis when we brush, when we do our brushings in yoga, you know, if you, if you do the skin kriya with the, with the brush, you are supposed to brush up from the uh, Manipur up and then from the Manipur down on the leg. And you're supposed to start with the front and then do the back, brush down. Mm -hmm. So I mean, and then that's tied to whatever the flow of energy through the chakras. I don't don't know all of it. I'm not an expert in that area. But there is, right? And then you're supposed to do back and forth across the Manipur and not, you know, up and down or not in a circle. So, hey, hey. (laughs) Your cat is like, <laughs> she is really misbehaving right now. She wants attention. She's, come here. She's feeling, oh, she's, come here. She's, she's like, you don't want me walking on your keyboard. I'm going to go scratch here. the bedpost. <laughs> but yeah, so, I mean, you know, there could be reasons for different. I mean, I understand. Like I said, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. that has to be an individual thing. Like, I mean, if you think there's a right. benefit to that and then you learn what it's about and try to practice it the way you understand it but not to apply that so she's just knocking things over right now not to um <laughs> not to apply to other people or judge other people or exclude other people based on that right so that's the part right. of religion that i don't yeah you know yeah. It's, and there's been a lot of obviously you know obviously a lot of violence done in the name of the that right religion, you know yeah yeah um, yeah so. and then and then i and your cat is so funny. Um, <laughs> one more thing I'm going to say, and then we can, we can, we can close the episode so you can, so your cat can have some release and some attention from you. But one thing I wanted to just make a comment on what you're saying as far as religion goes is, is that it applies sort of to everything where if we have this belief that everything is neutral and we're the ones assigning meaning to it, then we decide you know, like what's important, what's not important. We decide if, you know, go brushing the arm like this first versus that, you know, is that, is that something that activates your own energy or not, you know, and I think that's that true. or not. Yeah. And, yeah. That's where, and that is where I do think that's where the practices of Hatha yoga came from, which is the sages that were studying the philosophies started to understand like, oh, this stuff manifests itself in the physical world and we can actually use the body to attain knowledge so you know let's you know let's do these poses and and breathing exercises and um kriyas that will help us to internalize some of this philosophical stuff so um i actually appreciate that about islam in that it also includes physical prayer where you're Mm. standing and then you're doing different you know bowing down you you like bend at the waist then you get down on the ground then you stand up again I'm not yeah. sure there's some conversation in yoga circles and Islam Muslim history circles about the sun salutations in yoga and did they come from the poses of the prayers or did mm. it, maybe was it the reverse did the poses and prayers come from the sun salutations because huh. there was a lot of back and forth once again silk roads the trade routes there was a right. lot of cultural exchange between mm-hmm. Um, South Asian spiritual practices and Islam, in particular in Kashmir, which is where mm. Hatha Yoga was invented. It yeah. was invented in Kashmir in the 14th century. And right around that same time, somewhat later than that, Dara Siko, who was one of the um, princes, he was one of uh, Shah Jahan who built the Taj Mahal. His mm. son was Dara Siko. And Dara Siko was, Dara is a Persian name. So he was, you know, even though he was a South Asian prince, he had a Persian name. He was super interested in yoga practices. So he practiced yoga asana and he had a teacher in the castle and he had all of the yoga texts translated into Farsi and illustrated. Wow. In fact, his, um, Dara Siko's manuscripts, the illustrated manuscripts from the 1500s or whenever it was that he did it, I don't remember. There are some of the ways that we know that um, there were always women practicing yoga and that there were women, mm. women yoga teachers because his pictures have some of them. 
And then he also has pictures of old props, like straps and blocks being used by the old yogis. Oh, I mean, they weren't made out of purple styrofoam the way they are now. <laughs> <laughs> but the, he showed that those pictures show yoga, yoga classes happening. It's really interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. Interesting and so he was responsible for this passage of ideas between Sufi sages and yoga sages. And mm. uh, it's a really, really interesting moment of cultural exchange between the yeah, yeah. Middle East and South Asia. Yeah, yeah. And to think also the merging of, of spiritual practice and prayer with the physical, you know, and how mind, body and spirit are all are all linked up. Yeah. Um, so important. And a lot of us forget that connection as well. But um, anyway, all right. So let us wrap up this episode of it was so rich. This conversation was so rich. We talked a little bit about everything and I have a bunch of notes on resources that I'm like, all right, I gotta go check this out, see what he's talking about. (laughs) Um, but I wanted to close our episode as we always do with a poem. So did you bring a poem to share with us today? I could read you a poem. That would be wonderful. Uh, this poem is called recite. Mm. And I refer to a housekeeper in this poem. I just want to be clear. The housekeeper is the person himself. He is the housekeeper, right? Recite. Small animal, recite. You sent nowhere, arriving in the night. All my forgotten prayers. Not prayers, really. Nothing to ask for. No one would answer. A crassness of calling a body, a corpse, lawnmower sound through the window, the housekeeper sinking. Is this body a house? Is this house a body? God's like you, a misfit. You don't fit, he don't fit. Hmm. I love that. Thank you so much. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much for... um, sharing your time with me and my audience. Um, Love talking to you. And we are going to put all of your, um, all the resources that you mentioned in the show notes. So for those who are like, I got to write that down. Don't worry. (laughs) It'll be be there. It'll be there. Thank you so much. It was great chatting with you. Yeah. And so we'll close the um, practice, as I like to say, um, with a little namaste so to close our episode i want to say the divine light in me bows to the divine light in you my friends until next time namaste namaste if you're feeling like fighting the good fight is bringing you down and hope is starting to fade grab my free seven-day meditative challenge spark joy in chaos by signing up for my newsletter which will be more light to your inbox go to suryagian.com slash subscribe